Good morning and welcome to Midway. We're so thankful you're here. We appreciate so much that you've chosen to be with us as we have assembled this morning to worship our Heavenly Father. And we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you might have. As we began our lesson this morning, I want to call your attention to a man by the name of Franklin Lehman. Mr. Lehman lived out in California back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mr. Lehman was a businessman, but because of uh, the failure of his business, and I do not know why his business failed, but because his business did fail, he was forced to take a manual labor job in Pasadena, California, packing oranges and lemons. And so he, uh, he had a job doing that. One Sunday night, Mr. Lehman heard a sermon regarding the love of God, and that sermon was something that really stuck with him. He said he went home and he thought about it all night. He contemplated the love of God. And on the way to work the next morning, he began to think of some words and began to write some words down in the form of a poem. Now, it was customary at that time for a poem to have three stanzas rather than just two. It's sort of like a sermon. You know, you almost think you have to have three points to a sermon, but... It was customary at that time for a poem to have three, stanz- three stanzas, and he could only think of two stanzas. And so he racked his brain, he thought about it, and thought about it, and thought about it. And finally, he thought about a poem that had been given to him on a card, and he searched that poem out, and, and written on the card on which the poem was uh, found were these words says, these words were found written in a cell wall in, in a prison some 200 years ago. Now keep in mind, this is the early 1900s, and so it would be 300 years ago now. And he said, it's not known why the prisoner was incarcerated, neither is it known if the words were original or if he had heard them somewhere and had decided to put them on a uh, place where he could be reminded <clears throat> of the greatness of God's love. Whatever the circumstances, he wrote them on the wall of his prison cell. In due time, he died, and the men who uh, had the job of painting his cell were impressed by the words. Before their paintbrushes had obliterated them, one of the men jotted them down, and thus they were preserved. That must have been some pretty profound words that uh, these prison guards, or these in uh, uh, the place who were there, the workers who were there, to make an impression on them. So what were the words that were written down? You may recognize some of these words. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You may have sung those words. To that the refrain was added, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. As you look at those words, you'll note that that is the third verse of the song, the poem that was written by Franklin Lehman. Now, they said they didn't know if the man in the prison had written them or not. The story goes on that they did some research or somebody has done some research And they found that they were written around 1050 A.D. by a Jewish rabbi, and I won't even begin to pronounce his name, but he is the one who penned those words that became the 
final stanza of the song that we know as the love of God. How indeed do you describe the indescribable love of God? Have you ever thought about that? How do you describe the indescribable love of God? That's a major task. But as we think about that this morning, let me ask you another question. Have you ever thought about the love of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about what that means? The question that we're looking at, of course, you know that we're uh, looking at Bible questions on Sunday mornings. And the question that we're looking at today is found in the book of Romans chapter 8 at verse number 35, penned by the Apostle Paul. And that verse in part simply reads in this way, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not just the love of God, but the love of Christ. As we think about that statement today, and uh, as it regards that question that Paul asked and raised on that occasion, there are two ways, two possible ways that we can think about and, uh, and interpret the, the idea, the phrase, the love of Christ. It, first of all, could mean that uh, it's the love that Jesus has for us, the, the love that Christ had for man when he laid down his life for mankind. Or the second way that it's sometimes uh, interpreted, and there are a number of those who are uh, of the persuasion that it goes in this way, that it talks about man's love for Christ, rather than, rather than Christ's love for man, but man's love for Christ. Now, we had this verse read to us this morning by Brother Jairus, but let me continue in Romans chapter 8 at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, uh, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Brother Leroy Brownlow, in his book, wrote concerning this passage, he said, uh, uh, in this passage the phrase evidently means man's love for Christ, for no one would think that the rigorous things mentioned in the context would keep Christ from loving us. Whereas some might think that the hardships we endure for Christ might cause our love for Him to cease. Well, I will admit to you this morning that Brother Brownlow does raise some valid points here. You know, it would seem that, that even though we're going through things, Christ would still love us. But if we're being confronted with an onslaught of problems and persecutions and things that are mentioned here, that our love for Christ might grow at least cold. That it might wane in the way that we feel about Him because we question, is He really there? Does He really care? Is He willing to help me? Why is it that I am going through all of these things? But I believe this morning that if we consider the entire context of Romans chapter number 8, that we're going to find that what happens here is that Paul is talking about the love that Christ has for us. Now, we'll mention again this morning the, the love that we have for Christ, but it seems that in context, what Paul is writing about is indeed the love that Christ has for us. As we think about that context this morning, let's think about the fact that uh, the paragraph that we're reading begins in verse number 31. If you have your Bible, you may want to open it up and look and read along with us. In the book of uh, Romans chapter 8 at verse 31, Paul writes and says, What 
shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that's the beginning of the paragraph as we, as we break down what we have here in verse number 35. But you know what? As we consider these things, what shall we say then to these things? What shall we make of these things? I would ask, Paul, what are you talking about? What things are you talking about? What is it that you're dealing with that you're asking us about what shall we say to them? What are these things? Well, we have to back up into the earlier in the chapter in order to find the things that Paul is addressing. And we won't take time to read the entirety of the chapter, but let me point out a few. Look at verses 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17 of the chapter, the Bible says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. Now, now I just want to point out as we are looking at some of these that Verses 16 and 17 mention a blessing. They mention a glorification, if you will. The fact that we are indeed the children of God. Those who have obeyed the gospel, who have put on Christ, have become an heir with Christ. And so we have that. But I want you to notice that he also mentions not just the the blessing or the glorification we have. He also mentions that we are to suffer with him. And, and so that would in some way, it seems, connect what we read down here in verse 35 with whatever it is he's talking about. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And, and again, we have the, the, the problems that we have. And notice that Paul, he narrows it down. The sufferings of this present time, this present age, this, this time in which we're living in, or as we read it today, the time in which we are living in, that, that what we have to go through in order to be a Christian and attain and, and uh, uh, obtain the, the blessings that God gives us is really nothing, nothing compared to what God has in store for us. And so he again mentions some, some sufferings. Drop on down, if you will, to verse 28. In verses 28 through verse 31 that we've already read, but let's go back to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, it seems that verse 31, which is the beginning of our paragraph, is tied not just to the fact, back up in verses 16 and 17, that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided we go through the sufferings, but it's also tied here with God Himself working all things together for good. I don't have time this morning to deal in great detail with that. We all need to remember that Paul is not saying all things are good. 
For a parent to lose a child, that's not a good thing. For a parent to watch a child suffer with sickness, that's not a good thing. For persons like Mr. Lehman to lose their business, that's not a good thing. You know, we could go through that. Paul is not saying all things are good, but Paul is saying all things can be worked together by God for good. question is, when is the good coming that God is working them? You know, we're impatient. We want it to happen now. We want the, the bad things that happen to us to, to fall out for good for us right now. We want the, the scales to be tipped in our favor. But that's not what Paul is writing about either. You see, Paul is talking about that ultimate glorification. That we are the children, the sons of God, even within the context. You know, he talks about becoming one who is, uh, uh, Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, and he has many brothers, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters, and so forth. But the fact that I want you to look at and think about right here is that God is working all things together for good. Brother Roy Deaver said, God in his purpose considered those whom he would approve, and these he appointed to be conformed to the image of his Son, these whom he approved because of the acceptance of the invitation he purposed to justify and subsequently to glorify good confirmation to the image of his son and glorify those three words or phrases all refer to the final state of the redeemed. That is their ultimate glory. Things may not ever be good for us here, and we'll put that word in quotation marks, but there will come a time if we're faithful through everything and anything that we might face, that they will be good, better than we could ever even begin to imagine. But it's here that Paul raises the question, what conclusion is warranted by these facts, that we're heirs of God, that God is working things together for good, what is it that, that, that Paul uh, has in mind? Well, notice again, he asks, uh, answers that question to some degree by asking another. If God is for us, who can be against us? Us, referring to the ones who love God and who are called according to His purpose, back earlier in the chapter. God is for these. He's over and above us. And yet, he is working things together, working things on our behalf. He's providing for good and for our ultimate glorification. Now, let's move on. Having said all of that, Paul offers some proof that God is for us, that God is for us and that he's working all things together for our good. Number one, he gave his son. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Argument is, if God gave us the greater gift, his son, Will he not also give us the lesser gift, that is, the ultimate glorification and the good uh, that he has, uh, has offered us? And, and so, proof number one is, 
is Jesus died for us. God is working things together for our good. And the proof, one of the proofs is that he gave his son. He let Jesus come to earth and walk this old earth for 33 years and then die on a cross for you and for me. And that's proof that he's giving us. Okay? But then not only that, notice again, still under the idea, the concept of proof, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul again offers this proof that no charge can be sustained against God's elect ones because God is the one who justifies and Christ is the one who died for us. And again, I wish I had time to deal with that in greater detail. But just understand that Paul is, is under that heading that, that God is, is justifying and Christ has died for us, that that's all, again, working back up to verse 28, the idea of God working things together for our good. But again, as we continue on and continue thinking about it, he says, who can lay a charge, that is, an accusation or an institution, uh, uh, the institution of judicial proceedings. It's used in regard to Paul in the book of Acts chapter 23 at verse number 9. Felix said that Paul had been accused. And so basically, who can accuse us? Now, the only one who's qualified to do that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can make a charge against God's elect. And he's not going to do that. Why? Because he is there interceding for us. He is sitting at the right hand of God, talking to the Father on our behalf. He's interceding for us. In fact, nothing or no one, as we look at it, can bring a charge except Jesus, except God himself, that would condemn us or Take away the justification. Nothing or no one can separate us from the love of Christ, the love that God has for us. And so the overall context, again, as we go back to verse 35, points to the love that God, Jesus Christ, has for us. But you know what? That love is reciprocal, isn't it? We must have it as well. In the book of John, chapter 14, at verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now let's turn our attention very quickly to the immediate context. God is accomplishing good, and yet it's tied directly to and it depended upon the love of Christ for his people, even if they're going through a bunch of stuff. Paul has a list of stuff. Let's quickly run through that list. Paul talks about tribulation. That literally means oppression, affliction, trials. It comes from a word which, which literally means pressure, to be compressed. And so the people there, and perhaps even us today in some ways, are being oppressed. We're being compressed. We have the pressure. Distress, English Standard Translation 
calamity, that's what it is, and, and extreme affliction. You know, it goes even beyond the tribulation part. Persecution, another on Paul's list. That refers to a systematic, organized program designed to oppress and harass people. In, in the early days of Christianity, that was the Jewish folks, was it not? The scribes and the Pharisees and those guys, they got together and, you know, they, they went after Paul. Before that, they'd gone after Jesus. Later on, it would become the Roman government itself. And they would oppress the Christians. Famine, that scarcity of food. Nakedness, poverty in general. Danger, that is threatening circumstances and peril. And then the sword. The sword of the executioner is what is referred to here. Even judicial punishment, which would later come with the Roman Empire itself. But who can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, note... As you continue reading in the immediate context, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. In verse 36, Yet for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep headed to the slaughter. As you consider that, Christians were suffering all the things mentioned in verse 35, but they were doing that for the sake, for the cause of Christ. Because of their faith and their obedience, they were showing their love. And yet this will not in any way separate us from Christ or God's love for us and His working together all things for the ultimate good. In fact, through all these things, when God rewards us with our glorification we will not only have conquered even, even the things that, that we have gone through, we will not all only have conquered, but Paul says we will be more than conquerors. A conqueror is one who overpowers in victory. But what we're looking at here is not just a conqueror. In the original, it's a hupo-conqueror, to which we were translated a hyper-conqueror. One who is a super-conqueror, to be abundantly victorious, to be completely victorious, to have complete victory over. Even while we're going through all of these things, Christ still loves us. Because of Him, we will overcome all of that. All of these sufferings Paul raised earlier in the chapter, all of these sufferings are not even worthy to be considered when we understand what we have waiting. That's the love of Christ. You say, well, man, it hurts here. Yes, it does. Things are not always good here. No, they're not. But God's working behind the scenes. God's making sure that things will be better. Now having said that, there are three things that I want to address before time runs out. And we'll do that under the heading, what is this, what is all of this we've been talking about this morning? What does it mean to me? What does it mean for me? How does it apply to my life? Number one, 
my life as a Christian may not be easy. You know, we struggle to tell folks that. It may not be easy. Some folks say, ah, oh, you know, just, just, just become a Christian and everything's going to be automatically better. Our life as a Christian may not be easy. In your Bible, turn to the book of John, chapter 15. Look at verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is Jesus talking to his apostles. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. It was a fact that Jesus was persecuted, right? To the point even of death. They crucified him on the cross. And on the night before he was arrested and crucified the next day. He looked at his apostles and said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They'll do the same thing. And they did. Look at John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus is not offering Christians to live on a bed of roses. Jesus is saying your life as a Christian may not be easy. Look at another. How many of us know how many times the word Christian itself is used in the Scriptures? Let me answer that quickly. Three times. The name Christian is mentioned three times in the Bible. The last of which is found in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. And there Peter writes... Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If any man suffers as a Christian, he compares that to suffering as an evildoer in the previous verse. But there's such a thing as suffering as a Christian. Our life as a Christian may not be easy. Again, so many false teachers preach the health and wealth gospel. They, they want us to understand or want us to believe, rather, that, that our life is going to be easy peasy here on this earth. But I remember what the Apostle Paul said. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul, what are you saying? Number one, your life as a Christian may not be easy.
But you don't focus on those things. Well, that's hard, isn't it? Not to focus on on pain and suffering and all the heartache. But if we focus on what God is doing for us behind the scenes, I know one day it'll all be over. And I'll have a place, a home in God's house where I will be a super conqueror. I will never have to go through any of it again. And then one more verse, Matthew chapter number 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus, in that, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says when you're going through all of these things, Paul's list that we briefly hit there in Romans chapter uh, uh, 8, all of those things, he said, don't worry about them. The time is coming when your reward in heaven will be awarded to you. Number two, just because I'm hurting does not mean that God has forgotten me. You know, there's a tendency to question God's love when we don't think that we receive an answer to our prayers or we don't get the answer that we want. We do need to remember that God answers prayers in various ways. Sometimes He says yes, and sometimes the answer is no. As a parent, you don't always tell your child yes. There are times when you have to say no. And that's the way God is with us. But that doesn't mean He's forgotten us. You know, we have a tendency to question God's love when we're suffering and hurting. God is silent. When we compare ourselves with other people and we see that they're healthier and wiser and wealthier and prettier and all of these things, we think God has forgotten us. You know, there's a tendency to question God's love when we're not satisfied or content with the situation that we have right now. But folks, we may not know what's going on, what's happening, and why all these things are happening or not happening. But one thing that we can know, folks, we can know who's in control. We can know that God is in control and that God works for the good of His people. There's an illustration of what we're seeking to say, and that is this. Suppose you go into the kitchen and you decide to bake a cake. Okay? And you put the flour in the bowl and you get you a spoonful of flour. And you just, you know, stick it in your mouth and, whew, that don't taste good. And, you know, you get some of the other... Maybe even some of that, uh, some of those raw eggs. You get your bite of that. Some of the other things that go in it. You just get your bite of each one along the way. If you taste all of them individually, they don't taste good. But you know what? If we mix them up together in the right proportion, 
and we bake it with the right temperature and at the right time, that old cake's probably going to come out tasting pretty good, isn't it? We're going to like it. You know what? God is mixing everything in our life for our good. When the cake comes out of the oven, when we find ourselves in heaven, we will know God has not forgotten, but was busy every day of my life. God's great love for us is keeping Him busy behind the scenes, working things out for my ultimate good. Number three, the only one who can separate me from the blessings of God's love is me. I didn't say we can make God quit loving us, but I said we can separate ourselves from the blessings of God's love. Remember, in Romans chapter 8, at verse 28, that passage, Paul speaks of those who love God. How do we love Him? Mentioned a while ago, John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, at verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You see, though God desires us to be saved, though, though God desires to see us through everything that we face here on this earth and reward us in the end, we ourselves can allow things to cause our love for Him to dissolve. I can't do that to you any more than I can save you. No one in your family, none of your closest friends can, can separate you from God. Only you can do that. And so somebody has said it this way, if one is robbed of love for God, it's always an inside job. It comes from within us. Jesus said it's possible, Matthew 24, verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, uh, Jesus told John, he says, but I have this against you, talking about the church at Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Then he reminds them, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, it puts the, the action steps back on us. Love for God and sin simply cannot grow in the same heart. It just can't do it. As we close this morning, remember the words of the poem, the song, regarding the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. 
nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. No external person, no external force, no external event can separate us from the love Christ has for us. But we ourselves can separate ourselves from the good and from the glorification that God is working for us behind the scenes. And so this morning, each one of us needs to answer the question, have you separated yourself from the good that God has in store for us and from the love that He has for you this morning? Do you like the Ephesians of old? Do you need to remember from where you've fallen and repent? Do your first works. Just like Jesus told that church, those church members, those Christians, that they needed to do. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God's going to love us no matter what. No matter what you face, no matter how bad you hurt or whatever you go through. But if we allow those things or anything in our life, may not be something bad, may just be something pleasurable, may just be something we enjoy. If we allow that to come before our God, then we are the ones who have separated ourselves from God. It may be this morning that you need to come to Him to be baptized for the remission of your sins. It may be this morning that you need to come back to Him. If we can assist you in any way, do it. Come.